When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast. What role do pain and suffering play in leading a happy life? Our guest this week is the psychologist Paul Bloom, whose new book, The Sweet Spot, addresses that very question. And the answer is not what you're expecting. He joined us for a live stream in conversation event hosted by Matthew Stadlin. Enjoy. Start, please, at the beginning. Why this book? I was always interested in certain puzzles, certain weird pleasures we get, like hot baths and saunas, horror movies, BDSM, self-harm. And why do people get pleasure from this? Why does it do stuff for them? And so I I wrote a book. I started to sort of explore this. I was going to call my book The Pleasures of Suffering. And then as I wrote it, I realized that its scope has to be broader. There's a lot of suffering we choose that is a value to us, that makes a difference, that isn't in the service of pleasure, but maybe gives us meaning or morality. So I ended up exploring and talking about the role that suffering plays in life well-lived. And to me, that's a really interesting topic. Yeah, I think we should point out right from the beginning that at no point do we want to encourage people to suffer, particularly not in the context of mental health. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be exploring this relationship between pleasure and pain. Yeah, I mean, we want to encourage people to do some sort of suffering. I wouldn't discourage somebody from taking on a triathlon or eating, you know, spicy curry or or raising children. But yeah, we don't want unnecessary suffering. We don't want unchosen suffering. We want the right kind of suffering. We don't want self-harm, in other words. But that we definitely mean, don't want self-harm. That doesn't mean again that it's not interesting to to, to explore the the yes. psychology of it. How much how much of of your thinking about pleasure and pain? suffering and happiness and the relationship between them is rooted in the classics. Because if you think back to the Epicureans, they had a certain vision of what living a happy life involved. You think about Socrates, he too had a vision. You had the Epicureans, as I say, you had a whole range of, of different approaches. Aristotle had approached. Socrates thought you had to be poor. Aristotle thought you had to be rich and, I guess, ideally healthy and so forth. And, and then you had people who, who were hedonists who thought that the happiness was all about basically the pursuit of, of almost pure pleasure. How much of your understanding of the psychology of this area is rooted 2,000 or so years ago? Most psychologists who have thought about this, including me at the beginning, were just, just accepted hedonist view. We thought pleasure, happiness, they were interchangeable. Pleasure is the source of a good life. And when I originally wrote the book, started on it, dealing with questions like spicy foods and horror movies, I was sort of interested from that perspective. 
And then I found, you know, as I thought about it, and I should have thought about this earlier in my life, but that framework's pretty inadequate. There's a lot of other things we want. I end up converging on what you call motivational pluralism. You want many things. You want pleasure. Yeah. But also you want meaning. You want morality. You want purpose. And then I went back and read all the people I should have knew, known about in the first place, from Socrates to, you know, to, to Christian and Buddhist thought, all which really recognize that a good life contains some degree of suffering and pain and difficulty. Are we all consciously, do you think, motivationally pluralistic? I think we sometimes delude ourselves into thinking that we're just hedonists. I've had conversations with people. I know this guy is an incredibly sweet guy. He does favors for everybody. He's a real mensch. And he insists he's just motivated by pleasure. I do it because I like it. And I said, really? Like, the reason why you help people is because you get a buzz from it? Absolutely. And I think it's just self-delusion. I think people who tell themselves that they love their children, that's sorry, that they love their children just because it gives them a buzz when things go well and an ache when things go badly are in this weird hallucination about their own mental states. I think most of us are aware, have to feel that some things we do for fun, you know, it's a hot day and I reach for a cool drink and all I want is that feeling. Some things we do because we feel right. And sometimes we do it because we want to, you know, we want to do something significant. We have, we want to have a purpose in life. So I don't think motivational pluralism is that alien to us. I think it's accessible to consciousness, but there's some people who work very hard to deny it. Why do we do so many things in the pursuit of pleasure that we know in one part of our brain are bad for us? Take, for example, a very simple thought, unprotected sex, or taking a dangerous drug, I mean, all drugs are dangerous to different degrees and for different people, but you, you catch my drift. Yeah. There's a time horizon issue. So unprotected sex, for the most part, feels pretty good. The, the, the argument against it is in the future, but we discount the future. And we should discount the future. Like, like what's happening right now matters more than what should happen a year from now or two years from now, because, you know, you could die, things could change. It makes sense to be present-oriented. The problems arise when we're too present-oriented. And, and this shows up both as individuals. You know, I, I, you know, we could have unprotected sex, running terrible risks later on. You eat fatty and delicious food because it tastes good, even though you know, you're going to pay for it later on in your life. And also the societal level, things like climate change, for instance, are basically, I don't want to suffer now for much greater good in the future. And we're both present-oriented as individuals, but also as a society and also as a political system. So we choose, you know, psychologists talk about a marshmallow test where you're offered one marshmallow now or two later. We often grab at a marshmallow now. Socrates, Plato's mouthpiece, had something to say about this time horizon thing, didn't he? Because he was able to describe the idea that something that is immediately before you can appear a greater good than yes. something further down the line. Yes. And... And this is, this is a source of great individual differences. Some people have, we call it willpower. We call it temporal discounting. Some people are very good at not indulging in the thing right now if it would cause them greater harm. Some people are very bad at it. And, and this tends to be more or less a personality-wide characteristic. The same person who engages in unprotected sex is the person who's likely to smoke, is the person who's likely to take dangerous drugs is the person who's likely not to save money for the future. On the other hand, you know, you can imagine just to be fair, you could go too far. There are people who deny themselves all sorts of pleasures now in the hopes of getting a better future. 
and you could spoil yourself of, of a lot of uh, life that way. I try not to put the title of my book in everything, but, but here there really is a sweet spot, the right amount of temporal discounting uh, to do. There's a relationship, of course, between effort and reward, between effort yes. and the pleasure one gets from reward. So we might profoundly enjoy the chocolate, meringue, fluffy cream, hazelnut ice cream, hot chocolate sauce tower that I had at my favourite restaurant in central London last night. But the pleasure one gets from that is temporarily limited. The pleasure I got from my university degree, yeah. given that the entirety of my education was in one sense building up to that moment of aspirational achievement, is something that has lasted throughout my adult life, coming and going. It gives a deep lying satisfaction. We know that, don't we? It's not a complicated psychological fact about most of us. We know that. I talk in my book about how I trained to run a marathon and ultimately ran it. And it took me like a year to get into shape to do it. And it was difficult and unpleasant and full of injuries and blisters and all that good stuff. And I ran, it was horrible at the end I ran it, but I finished the damn thing. And that gave a source of satisfaction. I have friends who are in excellent shape. And, you know, every once in a while you hear about somebody who, you know, had a long night at the bar and they, they sit down and say, I want to run a marathon tomorrow. And they do. And they might do well, but it's not going to have the satisfaction of somebody working for it. It's, it's one theory, by the way, the way you talk about the relation between effort and value of why this amazing world we have of entertainment doesn't please us more. So I have, and you have, and everybody has a machine that could play through streaming video just about any movie I would ever want to see, any musical, any, any song, any, any uh, composer I'd want to hear. But the problem is it's so easy. You just boop, 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 and then you're listening to it. And the easiness robs it of its satisfaction. And there's an argument to be made, and I'm not someone who denies the beauty or the brilliance of watching movies, films, but the effort that is required in reading a good book. Yes can give a deeper level of satisfaction than watching a good film, I would argue, and there'll be plenty who disagree, but the reason I'd argue about that is because more is being asked of me as a reader. I am being asked, there's a, there's a, a greater gap between the author and the reader than perhaps there is between the director or the screenwriter and the viewer. I'm being asked to work, I'm being asked to fill in gaps, I'm being asked to bring my own experiences to that experience. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, you could say there are some movies that ask that of you, but for the most part, movies, TV, it's kind of passive. You sit on your sofa, you put on Netflix, and then just the time goes by. And what you're talking about sounds like um, what this guy, uh, Csikszentmihalyi, who sadly passed away a couple of weeks ago, describes as flow, which is there's a deep satisfaction in something which is so difficult that you're not bored, you're engaged but not so difficult that you're in a state of anxiety. It's in this sort of middle space. And, and reading a good book is that feeling. It gives you a feeling of satisfaction and engagement. Sum up his book for us about flow, if you, if you can. Oh, Just, this is a wonderful book. Um, he was interested in, in what people find rewarding and satisfying. And, 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 you know, and he started off by saying, well, I guess maybe it's pleasure. Everybody's first answer. And he did all of these clever studies finding that people think vacations are fun. And work is boring, work is unpleasant. But when you actually test them by sort of randomly asking different times a day, people are often happier at work if their job is satisfying and difficult 
than they are vacations, which are kind of often boring and stressful. And he, he began to think of this notion of flow. And the definition of a flow state that I like best is you're in a flow state if time goes by, you forget to eat, you forget to pick up the kids at school, you just lost in it. And he, through example after example, said, a life well lived is a life full of flow. He talk, tells these stories of these uh, rock climbers and these professional musicians and these mathematicians and poets losing themselves in flow for hours at a time. This is something I describe in my book about bird watching. It's a, for me a kind of meditative experience yes. where you see a bird when you're out in a, in a wood in the early morning with the sunlight coming through the trees. And at first, it doesn't appear to be very busy up there in the canopy. And then you see this one bird, tiny bird, and it leads you to another bird. And that leads you to another. And yes. suddenly, or soon, you are immersed in this avian world. You lose as much as is possible, perhaps, this sense of self. And you are as connected to your natural environment as maybe you can be. And you are in this position of flow. And that's a very profound pleasure. It's such a pleasure that perhaps we don't even realize we're experiencing the pleasure as we experience it. I mean, you, you, it's, it's another yeah. analogy might be, and, and of course, what I'm about to say is famously pleasurable, but making love when you are actually making love and not just doing sex, but making yes. love connected with that other person. You're in a moment of flow. And, and there are times when we are, we get the, you talk about the sweet spot. It's the, the, the title of your book. There are times when, we, when we've got that sweet spot because we might be skiing if we're fortunate enough to go on a skiing holiday. We might be skiing down a mountain and we, ha we have to be just sufficiently preoccupied with not tripping over, falling over and dying. Yeah that we lose all the stresses of our everyday life because we have to be in that moment. And that can be hugely pleasure-inducing, even though it requires some effort and some engagement to perform the task. That's a perfect description. And the qualification is true at, that you make at the end, which is it requires some work. So you ask people, and, and Csikszentmihalyi has done the studies where you ask people, how much flow do you experience in your life? Some people say none, zero. Because it takes some work to get into it. It, it takes some, some, you know, for the bird watching, you got to know stuff. You got to know stuff. You got to focus. Maybe in some level, you might just want to walk through the woods, just simpler. If you have to take the steps to pull yourself up into this state, and the world conspires against that, you know, um, social media does, your, your smartphone does. Your smartphone is the enemy of flow. Your, your smartphone will want you to look at it and get lost in it and not engage at a level of difficulty. Um, but when you do it, it's, it's the best thing ever. And you're right. You know, sex could be a source of flow. Good conversation could be a source of, you know, you're, you're talking to somebody and then, you know, all this time goes by and you don't realize how quickly it's happened. I know our audience would be curious to have your take on Viktor Frankl's work because it's something else that has influenced you and has gripped you in this context. Yes. Yes. Um, that is a book. I, I, I read two books when I was young that really shaped me. And it's that Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, is, is the other one. And, um, and, and the subtitle of my book, The Search for Meaning, is, is, is a kind of a shout out to Frankl. So, so Frankl, as people, I think for many people know the story, but he was, uh, he was in Austria uh, during the Holocaust. And he didn't want to leave. He, he had plenty of warning. He didn't want to leave his, his parents. Ended up going to, to the camps, I think, uh, Dachau and Auschwitz. And before he was in the camps, his job, he was a psychiatrist and he was interested in suicide. And so what he did was he did a sort of scholarly informal study asking, 
What distinguishes those who kill themselves in the camps, either through neglect or through actively killing themselves, from those who, who try to make it through? And he said, it's nothing as simple as, you know, good cheer, personality, extroversion. It's, it's, it's if you have a meaning. There's some sort of quote that says, you know, somebody who, ha- who has, you know, a why uh, in their life can, can make it through almost any how. And so he focused, he then built a philosophy, a, 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 a psychiatric method, built an idea that we naturally, we're not just hedonists, we also want meaning. And the meaning holds our life together. And, and this was a very powerful thought for me. While we're on meaning, and since you bring up Austrian Jews, I just want to mention my own grandparents because they were Jewish emigres, Jewish refugees from Vienna. And I want to connect it to something else you talk about in the book, which is this cliched phrase. You point out that most of us have said it probably, or if you Google it, it's it's everywhere. Everything happens for a, a reason. And this is a way of people trying perhaps to understand suffering and possibly connects to post-traumatic growth, which you also discussed. I look back at my grandparents and I remember them saying or being told that they would say, and of course they didn't mean this, they were better than most fully aware of the horrors of the Holocaust. In a lighter moment, they would thank Hitler because as a consequence of Hitler, they escaped anti-Semitism in Vienna. My grandmother, for example, asked for a test tube in her chemistry class in her Viennese university and was told, not for you, comrade. In other words, not for you, you Jew, and they came to England where they were welcomed and treated with respect. Now, although they didn't mean it literally, although they weren't really grateful to Hitler, maybe there is a seed in there of trying to make sense of something as horrific as being ripped from your home and from your homeland. The focus on my book is on chosen suffering, but you're raising unchosen suffering. And I think just as chosen suffering is often an expression of autonomy and purpose and, and, and a life well lived, we take unchosen suffering, which is just bad stuff that happens to us, you know, the Holocaust or, or, or you know, somebody you love dies, you're violently assaulted. And we try to instill meaning to it. We sort of try to reverse engineer it. And this is what religions do. A lot of, a lot of, a lot of what goes behind religions is, is the idea that everything happens for a reason. There's no such thing as mere, you know, stuff happens, but rather every, there's a logic to everything. And what you're talking about to your grandparents is, is in some way an example of what Dan Gilbert calls the psychological immune system, which is when bad stuff happens, we're often very good at telling a story that it all happened for a reason. Now, I think we should be cynical, and I think everything happens for reasons often a very cruel philosophy. You apply it to other people. Well, you got cancer? Well, let's figure out why. It spills into blame, right? It spills into blame. It spills into um, into sort of uh, uh, a comfort with the status quo, saying, "Well, you know, a lot of people poor, suffering, sick, unfortunate, but in the end, you know, it's all going to work out. Don't don't you worry yourself about it." And I think a mature way of thinking about it says sometimes bad stuff happens, just just random stuff, or, or or human malevolence. And we should try to get better and try to recover from it. But, but the storytelling uh, just isn't true. But on the other hand, I don't doubt that the storytelling does sometimes serve with our own suffering some sort of helpful role. It's, it's nice to be able to say that it wasn't, it wasn't just a loss that I recovered from, but somehow a hidden benefit. Just while we're on Unchosen, suffering and I absolutely accept that the focus of the book is on chosen suffering and the psychology behind that but you do give an example of 
the Boston Marathon runner. Yeah. So you, you, you ran a, a marathon. Just talk us through that very briefly, because it is a good example of this. This is this guy, James Costello, the Boston Marathon. Um, several years ago, there were bombs placed near the finish line, and they went off and killed several people and maimed others. And this guy was, uh, was seriously burnt and ended up in the hospital for six months, whereupon he met a nurse. They fell in love, and they got married. And the day they got married, he put on Facebook, I had wondered why this terrible thing had happened to me, but now I realize that it happened for a purpose. Everything happens for a reason. It happened so I'd meet this woman who would save me and become the love of my life and so on. And, you know, talking about it, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm close to tearing up, but I think it tells you something not about how the world really works, but about, about our psychologies. With, with a graduate student, kind of motivated by this, graduate uh, Kony Banerjee, we did some studies where we asked people to, to recall the most significant event that happened the last couple of years, either good or bad. You know, uh, they lost a parent, lost somebody they love, uh, they got married, whatever. And then we asked them a bunch of questions designed to sort of say, did it happen to send you a message? Did it happen for a reason? Was it fate? And we tested both atheists and theists. And as you might have predicted, the theists were much more likely to say things happen for a reason. That's religion gives you a ready-made language to do this. But even our atheists often said to a surprising extent, yeah, it was there to send me a message. Maybe there's, no, there's nobody sending the message, but still, there is a reason for it. I think it's a very powerful human reaction. Let's come back to chosen suffering and let's bring religion into the mix. If you take some really extreme examples, as you bring up in the book, you go to the Philippines, and you'll find people yeah. certain times of the year who, who literally ask to be nailed to cross. Yeah, yeah. That's something they are. Uh, they, in Mauritius, there's a Hindu festival where, um, where they, they put a, a spears through their face and then they put hooks onto their body. And then the hooks are attached to a heavy pile of rocks and you drag the rocks up the hill in the blazing sun. And those are extreme, but all of the major religions, and I bet all of the minor ones, have something like that. They say, you can't eat on those days. Don't eat this food ever. Don't have sex this way ever. There's various forms of deprivations and suffering. And you might wonder, what's the role of this sort of chosen suffering in religion? And there's different ideas. There's sort of two ideas, and I like them both. One idea, well, one idea is that it's a signal. So the people who participate in these grisly festivals are often young men looking for wives, and they're showing off how pious they are and how tough they are. But another theory, which could be compatible, is uh, was sort of from Emile Durkheim, which says, you know, these things bring a group together. If you and I suffer together as part of a ritual together, we'll become closer. And there's laboratory work on that. And then finally, there's just one other thing, which is all of this that you see in religious rituals, a stark difference between the chosen and the unchosen. So C.S. Lewis talks a lot about this, and he gives the example of fasting. And he says, to fast in the context of religion could be a glorious event. You're mastering your own body as a sign of devotion to God. But if you're not eating because you ran out of food or you can't afford or someone locked you in a room with no food, that's just awful. That's just suffering. And it's very hard to give a meaning to that unchosen part, but maybe too easy to give a meaning to the chosen part. Of course, being C.S. Lewis, he then complained, you shouldn't feel too, pr- too proud. It takes you away from, from God. This isn't entirely unrelated, perhaps, to the difference between solitude and loneliness. If you're on a, yes. a, a coach and you're traveling through the wine country and on the South Island of New Zealand and you're on your own and you're on your year off, you're supposed to be on your own at that point. And you've got your Walkman on if it was the late 1990s. And you can revel in that experience of solitude. 
if you are recently bereaved or you've split up from a girlfriend, then you're not supposed to be alone or you don't feel like you're supposed to be alone. And that could be very different from any sort of pleasure. Yes, yes. You, and we keep making that mistake and it fails. It often leads us to fail to understand the suffering of others. You know, Donald Rumsfeld, when talking about the mistreatment of prisoners in Guantanamo, he was asked, they make them stand all day. And Rumsfeld says, I have a standing desk. What's the deal? You know, there's a big difference in standing when you want to and standing when someone else makes you to. Um, I'm still on, on the sort of Iraq war theme. You know, Christopher Hitchens had himself waterboarded to know what it was like. He said, this is horrible. And I'm sure it is horrible, but it was much more horrible than he experienced because the thing about real waterboarding is they don't stop when you give them the signal. And, 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 and you use the example, actually, of the tiger who's charging towards you. That's a really yes. bad thing, right? If it's a real tiger and it's really charging towards you, we don't want that. But we can seek out a sort of a sugar-coated version of fear. If we go That's to right. if we go to one of those ghost trains, or we go to one of those theme yes. parks where you can where you can become involved or immersed in in a, a life almost lifelike experience, but where you part of your brain knows that you're totally safe. And of course, there's an element of this in gaming, isn't there? Absolutely, absolutely. All of the emotions we see as negative can become fun and sometimes positive if you strip them from the features that that the real world features that they typically resonate to. So fear is negative because fear corresponds to there's trouble. You're going to get eaten by a tiger or whatever. But if you take that away and you're in a haunted house or doing an Oculus Rift virtual reality thing, it could be fun. Even, you know, anger, you get angry. You, you see something in a movie and it makes you angry and it's kind of fun. Maybe, you know, there's going to be comeuppance at the end or revenge. And you also know nothing really happened. Even sometimes sadness, you know, you, could, you kind of feel a mild sadness and nurture it. There's sort of a pleasure in sulking sometimes, as long as you know, again, that the real world stuff isn't that bad. Yeah, we can feel sorry for ourselves. Yes. Feeling sorry for ourselves can be a pleasure. And it can, it can if it's taken too far and is overly self-indulgent, become a problem. Yes. But it, it, I imagine it has a psychological root because it kind of feels okay to feel sorry for ourselves. It does. And, and honestly, there's some evidence that thinking... so. When we daydream, to a surprising extent, our daydreams are negative. You might imagine, I got nothing to do, I'm daydreaming, I'll imagine myself winning a, a big prize or something. Um, but the truth is, there's, imagine myself winning a big prize, and what am I going to do when I win a big prize? I'm going to be happy and say thank you. Where the mind goes is to where it's worth going, which is struggling with bad stuff that might happen. I think this is a tremendous appeal of movies or books where everything goes to hell, no government, no police. And then we, and we're fascinated by this because it's something worth thinking about. And there's something, isn't there, that can be heroic or impressive in the struggle. You talked a moment ago about the shared experience of, of sacrifice or of ritual. Yeah. And there are those, of course, who believe perhaps that we invented gods to remind us to do ritual, as you say in the book, like putting up a, a, a bullseye on a tree in, in order to remind us to train and practice in our archery with our, with our bows and arrows. And you quote Richard Dawkins at one point in a slightly different context. You, you say that he says something along the lines of, we're all going to die, we're the lucky ones. Because yeah. think of all those unborn. But I'm, I'm just bring Dawkins in to this context because he's recently, I think, or at some point, 
reevaluated the, the idea of the handicap theory. He was skeptical yeah. of the handicap theory initially, but now he's rather persuaded by it. So it goes something like this. You get a peacock, the male peacock, with these incre- incredible feathers, and it fans the tail. Why is it doing this? Well, the handicap theory suggests that the peacock is showing himself in all his, in all his glory, not to show off the colours, but to say, look at me, I've got this incredible yeah. burden on my back, and yet I can still mate with you. I can, yeah. I can still do all this stuff yeah. because look at me, I'm a hero. Yeah. You so, see, so, so, so the heroism of suffering, in other words, a little bit. I like that. I like that idea. I never thought of it that way. I mean, I think the handicap principle is sort of in some way when you see a, a movie, so you see Brad Pitt dressed up in some way, which is ridiculous. And basically he's saying, I can look good, you know, while wearing plaid and a beanie because I am that handsome. And, and a warning to all the people who would compete with him, you try this, you'll just look like an idiot. But I like the idea of, um, of that we sometimes could pile on burdens upon ourselves just to show how we can transcend them. You know, like you're a chess master and you play without your queen when you're playing me because you can. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. When we think of the word masochism, we think of someone who's a masochist because they're deliberately doing nasty stuff to themselves. We might think of sadomasochism, yes, sadomasochism in the sexual context. But walk us through, if you would, the idea of benign masochism, how it works, what it involves, and give us an example. The term was thought up by Paul Rosen, brilliant psychologist, who first, I think, drew the field's attention to these cases where you're going to people harm themselves but in an everyday sort of way, and it doesn't involve damage to the body. So some examples are eating spicy foods. No other animal willingly eats spicy foods. You know, dogs in Mexico raised around spicy food will avoid it if they have a chance. Imagine your ankle is sprained. What do you do? Well, you kind of roll around it. Sore tooth, you poke it with your tongue. Um, Somebody says, you want to look at something disgusting? One answer is, yeah, I do. Um, roller coaster rides and horror movies and tragedies and sad songs. We seem to seek out physical and emotional pain in the proper levels. And so much, and this is kind of what got me into this, like what's up with that? And I think there's different things. One of which is, you know, you mentioned Socrates and Socrates was really smart about the subtle balance between pleasure and pain. Sometimes I think we present ourselves with a bit of pain because the contrast to the pleasure coming later is wonderful. You know, you're in a hot sonnet and you jump into a lake in, in Finland and the cooling shock, you know, you're eating something really spicy in your mouth and you drink some beer and it cools it off and it feels great. I think that's one thing that goes on. Another thing that goes on is um, sometimes the right kind of pain could be an escape from self. And I know that sounds kind of hippie and weird and crunchy and everything, but but the idea is that when you're, when, when you're sort of, um, it goes back to what we were talking about before, that sometimes you're just, your head is all full of your worries and your regrets and your self-image. And then you engage in some sort of activity like rigorous exercise or banging your hand against the wall or, you know, or BDSM. And one thing that does is it clears the head. 
it does it does for the rest of us what real expert meditators say mindfulness meditation does for them which is it dissolves the self and having the self go away is really something we talked earlier about effort and reward this can have a physical manifestation so if we've climbed a mountain and we get home we we tend to think of ourselves as feeling tired or exhausted in a good way yes and that's a very different experience from being shattered at the end of a really stressful experience or a really hard day at work that you didn't particularly enjoy putting ourselves through physical challenges can create psychological reward but we can actually feel it we like the heaviness of our limbs because the heaviness of our limbs almost embodies that sense of achievement that's a great way of putting it there, there's a sort of phenomenology of a satisfactory bout of effort you know i talk about running you know the mar- marathon very poorly and at the end my heart's pounding and i'm sweating and i'm i'm feel like i'm going to die and it felt wonderful well, if I'm doing it now as I'm talking to you, I'd feel like I'm having a heart attack and it'd be horrible. There's such a feeling of, yeah, of working out or doing something satisfying and having your, your, your body ache as opposed to you have a blinding headache because you stood the wrong way on the, you know, on the subway back home and you just, you, and it was incredibly noisy. I even think there's kind of a difference between the feeling after you've been in a flow state for like an hour, I don't know, me talking to you doing a, a difficult crossword puzzle, rock climbing, whatever, versus spending an hour sitting on your phone in a kind of a trance, uh, you know, going by YouTube videos or doing Twitter, which I've spent way too much time on in my life, which is the, the, the satisfying one feels at the end, you feel energized. You can do a lot of stuff. The other one, you just feel kind of gross. So at some level, our experiences are, are titrated to whether or not what we're doing is internally rewarding or not. We need to talk about catharsis. So if we go to watch King Lear and we see Gloucester's eyes being poked out and we see King Lear's misery as he gives up his kingdom too soon and we watch the physical manifestation of that, the phenomenology, the the sort of physical analogy of him going naked in the storm, we are being taken on this immense psychological journey and we are suffering with him except we're not really suffering ourselves. And through that process, there is a sort of catharsis. We almost are cleansed without having real harm happen to us, without actually having given up our own kingdoms. Talk to us just a little bit about catharsis in the context of this pleasure and pain matrix. So so there's, there's a very sort of specific, narrow meaning of catharsis that I think most people in my business are very skeptical of. And this is that you, you go to a horror movie or you see a, a, ter- a terrific Shakespearean tragedy and through weeping or through shaking with fear, you're then cleansed and feel pure. And actually it turns out that isn't exactly what happens. People leave horror movies jittery. They leave tragedies a little bit weepy. It's not clear that we have the cleansing. But the broader phenomena which you're getting at, that there's a satisfaction to this, is very real. And I think this is something only fiction can do. Because fiction can engage us in real-world struggles of importance and magnitude, but in a sense, they aren't real-world, and so we're safe. We, we, we're, we're insulated against them. 
Now, another example of that might yeah. be, and, and for me, this is almost the very definition of the sweet spot, or certainly a very good example of it. We, if, if I go back to my parents' place in the middle of Wales, in the middle of nowhere, where you can't see, well, you can just about see another house on the hillside. Bad if wife, I'm man. on my own in that house, I probably am not going to, I don't like horror movies anyway, but I'm probably not going to seek out no. a particularly scary thriller, right? Right. But if I'm with my dad or if I'm with my girlfriend, I might, because it will scare me just enough, but not too much. You asked before, are we conscious of these many appetites we have beyond pleasure? And this is a case where we are. I think most people, by the time they reach the age you and I are, but probably much younger, know where, how to titrate things. We know how much we can take. I like horror movies, but I tend to like kind of more artsy horror movies and less extreme gore and torture. I have friends of mine who go all the way up to 11 on that, and, and they can take it. One way to think about the difference is the idea of porousness. So basically, you could imagine a world where what's real stays real and what's imaginary stays imaginary. But if, if it was strictly that, we wouldn't get much pleasure from these things. You have to get scared to enjoy a horror movie. People who watch pornography have to get aroused. You have to somehow treat it as if it was real. But if you treat it too much as if it was real, you're alone in this house in the middle of the woods and you can't sleep that night. You know, you got to kind of put it at the right level. The ability grows. I'm, you know, I'm, my day job is a developmental psychologist and you don't take, you know, a five-year-old to see Nightmare on Elm Street because their reality and the, and, and, and the fiction blend together too much. As you get older, you get more and more abilities to shield it off. We've skirted around altruism in this conversation. And altruism can involve sacrifice. And the idea of altruism is we're doing something that is really genuinely for someone else and not for ourselves. And yet, of course, we can take great pleasure in altruism yes. because it makes us feel good. Can you expand a little bit on our basic understanding of altruism? I think there's a, a view uh, that we are, there's no such thing as altruism. We're all ultimately selfish and so on. I think that's nonsense. There's, there's now tremendous evidence from baby studies, developmental studies, cross-cultural research that we've evolved self-interest, absolutely, but we've also evolved an interest in the welfare of others, particularly those close to us for sort of standard Darwinian reasons, you know, our children, our people we interact with, but it could extend even broader. And altruism is part of our, our nature, you know, limited at times, sometimes inadequate. And it's not entirely a change of topic from pleasure because one way we've been wired up to be good is that feeling good does give us a buzz sometimes. You know, I, I, I think good is its own motivation, but I wouldn't deny that there's some kick to it. There's a very simple study that uh, Elizabeth Dunn and, and her colleagues did, which was um, very, you, you give somebody at the beginning of the day $20 and half of the people are said, spend it on yourself. And half of the people are said, told, spend it on somebody else. You bring them back at the end of the day, the people who spent it on other people are happier. There's something to that. Let's talk about happiness in a little bit more depth because we, we, we touched on the hedonists earlier. And the, yes. the Greek hedonists, they, they sought pleasure and they wanted the exclusion of pain. And we all know hedonistic people. And I, I suspect that most hedonists, true hedonists that we know are not happy. Yesterday I spoke to an English professor of philosophy, A.C. Grayling. Oh. And he talked to me about the idea that 
and we basically know this, that the one thing that you shouldn't be doing, many things you shouldn't be doing in this context, but the one thing you shouldn't be doing if you want to be happy is to try to be happy. Yeah. And it's something you touch on in the book as well. Yeah. Explain why that is and try and help us to get around that because given that we all secretly really do want to be happy, <laughs> how do we trick ourselves into not trying to be happy in the process of trying to be happy? A friend of mine, Ed Slingerland, wrote a book called Trying Not to Try, um, basically drawing on ancient Chinese philosophy, which is the question. There are some things like acting cool where you want to do it, but, um, but if you try to act cool, it wrecks the whole thing. And happiness is certainly one of them. So, so Grayling is right. Um, he's right on sort of empirical scientific grounds, tons of studies where you ask people, how important is being happy to you? How much of your life do you spend trying to be happy? And then you ask them, you know, how happy are you? Are you depressed? Are you anxious? And you find that the people who spend most of their time trying to be happy are in the end worst off. And when you, and that's a correlational study. You can think of different ways of talking about it, but you can also tell people, you know, I want you to spend the next day really working on being happy. And then I, I check in with you and you're not so happy. I think the advice here is to seek greater goods, like, you know, enduring relationships, projects, and so on. And for one thing, that's satisfying in its own right. Maybe your time at the gym or your time bird watching is not happy in any simple sense, but it's rewarding. And also, I think happiness will come along the way. So I'm a pluralist. I think seeking happiness is one thing. Pleasure is one thing. Meaning is another thing. But they are related. So when you ask people, how much meaning do you have in your life and how much happiness do you have in your life? The answers are actually correlated. Yeah, there are people who are high in one and zero in the other, but many people have both. I don't want to stray too far into the negative elements of mental health because neither of us, as far as I know, are medical health doctors no. or, or professionals. It, it, it just on a very, very superficial level, it is interesting that we can use, I believe, pain and indeed self-harm as a sort of negative coping mechanism yeah. that we then need to get help with. Yeah. And so the use of pain as appearing to be pleasurable or appearing to ameliorate or alleviate some other pain can be very damaging. I think just for example of my own OCD, I might get obsessive about something and then my compulsive behavior, which is a reaction to that obsessiveness, can be damaging. Yeah. I think there are definitely such cases. I, I talk about the role of suffering and pain as you know, part of pleasure and part of the good life, but there are definitely ways it could go awry. And one is self-harm like, or just non-suicidal self-injury where the person, maybe often adolescent, might cut themselves and they aren't trying to kill themselves, but they, are, they do have a sort of desire for pain for marking their bodies. And there are a host of different theories of this. One theory is it's a cry for help, a signal. You know, I'm in need here. Nobody's listening to me. I'm going to show you how serious I am. It could be to some extent self-punishment. So sometimes people, you know, carve into their bodies words like loser or disgusting, as if, you know, they hate themselves and trying to damage themselves. I think one theory which has a lot of weight to it and connects to kind of your examples is pain can often distract you from anxiety and neuroses. So, and this shows up in the sort of unhealthy sort of pain. It also shows up in more acceptable kind of pain, like athletic training where sometimes somebody who, who's too much in their head might go for a long, hard run. 
Tell us just a, a little bit, if, if you would, about struggle. And I know we've talked about it in the obvious ways in terms of climbing yeah. mountains and, and, uh, and the struggle one might go through to, to get good grades and therefore the proportions, the proportional, sometimes disproportionate satisfaction or indeed disappointment if you don't get what you want. But more widely, how in your view does struggle relate to happiness or relate to pleasure? And, and let's not forget either that, Pleasure and happiness are not necessarily one no, thing. they aren't. They aren't. And happiness isn't a singular thing either. Sometimes people say happiness, they just mean the sum total of your experience. Sometimes people mean when I ask you, how happy are you? And you tell me the answer. And those are not one and the same. It gets, you know, one of them correlates with money in a different way than another one, for instance. You know, if I could have put more words into my title, struggle would have been one of them. For the most part, when I talk about suffering, I, I often don't mean pain. I mean difficulty struggle, barriers to overcome. And I think we're wired up so that that has tremendous value to us. Finding a goal, trying to attain it over a significant period of time is, is A, it's what we want to see when we watch a movie or TV show or book. You know, it's, it's screenwriting 101. Present an obstacle. It could, be, it could be the cutest obstacle. It could be a deadly serious obstacle. Present an obstacle. But we like it in our fictions because we like it in our life. If people who go through lives with no obstacle, no struggle, run the risk of boredom, boredom and ennui and dissatisfaction. And there's kind of a, par- there's kind of a paradox here, which is just again, is what you go to. Which, when I train for a marathon, say, I want to run a marathon, I say, I don't look forward to failing. And I don't want to look forward. To, I don't want to have blisters. I want everything to go well. But at the same time, if I didn't have struggle, if it wasn't difficult, it wouldn't end be this unsatisfying. And is there a sense, do you think, in some people, psychologically, that if they live, let's put it bluntly, run-of-the-mill lives or lives that they consider to be run-of-the-mill or they have a nine-to-five job, that they might be predisposed or more predisposed to look for a different or an unconventional type of pleasure compared to someone who is a rock climber by trade yeah. or is a professional sportsman who's used to the highs and lows. I'm thinking just for example, and don't want to, I don't want to, to, to sort of be explicit here, but if, if we talk, for example, about sadomasochism mm-hmm. talk, or, or talk about sexual relationships where one partner really wants to be dominated, not in a dangerous way, but in, but in, 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 a, in that sort of relation. Sometimes you might find that person in everyday life to be very different to what they are expecting yes. in the bedroom. Yeah. Some phrase, geek in the streets, freak in the sheets or something. Um, I don't know if that, if that translates. Um, what you're saying makes total sense. I'll be honest, which is I've, I've looked to try to find that relationship. So one way of putting it is when your life is full of comfort and boredom, you will seek out extreme stimulation Otherwise, this also makes the prediction that you'd find more of this BDSM, spicy foods, religious ritual in wealthy countries where often people are not worried about their day-to-day survival than in extremely poor countries where you think they have enough to worry about, enough real suffering to worry about. You would predict it as far as I know, there's no evidence for it. I mean, I'd love to, I'd love to say you're right because it makes sense to me, but I've never seen good evidence for it. And I got to say, just, you know, if there are any doctoral students out there looking for a project, the question of who likes suffering and who doesn't and what kind, why do I like horror movies and you like spicy foods? 
we are at a loss. Predicting it is everybody has some taste for benign masochism, for difficulty, for struggle. But the extent of it and why we want it in different flavors, I think is just a mystery. Explain to those who haven't read the book yet why you use the term sweet poison. I think it's from a line from the poet Keats in a love letter where he talks about, I, I can't quote it, it's a, people should Google it, but um, it, it, it expressed a particularly mordant view about, um, about wanting either like a kiss from her lips or death. And, uh, and it presents a certain poetic view towards suffering, which I sort of talk about at the end. What can we learn from Aldous Huxley in, in terms of pleasure and pain? So Aldous Huxley, and this is how I end my book. So this is, I want people to buy it, but if not, we've heard the whole thing from beginning to end, um, which is in Brave New World, it's a dystopian fiction where everyone's happy, because, mostly because of drugs, because of, because of chemical drugs that, that, that it gives them sort of exuberance and also behavioral techniques. And Huxley imagines a savage who rejects this and, and is arguing with a representative of the establishment. And a representative says, we can make you happy. We can give you comfort. And the person who I think is, is speaking with Huxley's voice says, there's more to life than that. I don't want comfort. I want, you know, I want sin. I want adventure. I want danger. I want trouble. And, and that's, you know, I think that captures real insight about human nature that Huxley was well aware of. Before we go to audience questions, and, and do send in questions if you have them, I, I'm just curious myself as to what you found most surprising or enlightening about the research you did for this book, because you draw on other authors, you have your own thoughts, your own theories, you, you try to lean on some of the science and some of the psychological yeah. research. What, what kind of made you sit up and go, wow, that's really interesting? Something, I, a lot. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, it was so much fun to read the research of, of other people, you know, studies about how if I make you think of something, something you're ashamed of, you're more likely to shock yourself later. Studies of how communities of people who suffer together then become closer and you do this in the laboratory. The thing which moved me, which, I, which is something we mentioned before, and I've sort of been, been mulling this over, it's the finding of Csikszentmihalyi, which is that although people recognize the value of flow, the value of falling into a state. So many of them never attain it. And he was writing this a while ago, I think 20 years ago, maybe 25 years ago. And right now, there are so many temptations, particularly over the internet, that it makes it harder and harder to get the right sort of suffering, the right sort of struggle, the right sort of effort, the right sort of flow. So I think reading this book made me truly appreciate the bind that modern people are in, where it's like there's a war against the good life in that way. I think it's fascinating, by the way, and we, we talked about that extreme practice in the Philippines of people being nailed to the cross. But in the Western tradition of Christianity, suffering, sacrifice, and you do a whole chapter on sacrifice, of course, yeah. is absolutely at the heart of it, isn't it? Yes, yes. And then don't get me started on Buddhism. which Well, which, well just, just a little bit on Buddhism. Well, people I know uh, who know this much more than me will tell you that the four noble truths, the tenets of it, uh, involve an appreciation of the inescapability of suffering, the impermanence of everything you value, the fragility of everything you hold to. And the idea is that 
only through really appreciating this are you ever going to make any sort of mental or spiritual progress. The idea that that happiness and pleasure could be an attainable goal, one worth attaining, is my understanding is entirely anathema, both to Christianity and also Buddhism and probably other religious traditions I haven't looked at. It's interesting that even those of us who are in a basically happy state, and there may be fewer of us than we imagine, that word vulnerability that frig- or fragility that you used, at any moment something painful, unchosen, might happen. I wonder whether there's any sense in which by building in a bit more deliberate risk, chosen risk or deliberate pain of some sort in a, in a safe way. I don't mean, a, yeah. I, don't, I don't, 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 don't mean certainly not in a criminal way or in a self-harming way, but I wonder whether that is, you know, some, some form of an attempt to control our own fate that we don't want to be too happy. That's why we touch wood. We don't want to be too happy because otherwise we're more vulnerable. It tempts fate is a way of putting it. Um, and there's some evidence that, um, there's one study where you give people a list of 32 bad things that could happen in your life. And some people, and see how many to take off. And some people, oh my God, they pick, up, pick off all 32 and you, it's, oh my God, it's horrible. But some people take off nothing. No, none of it ever happened. And then you check their pain tolerance and their tendency to catastrophize. And what you find is a, a sort of um, a U-shaped curve where the people, an inverted U actually, the people with the, with the highest pain tolerance are the people in the middle. If you've had a life of suffering and pain, it weakens you. You know, Nietzsche was wrong. You know, sometimes what doesn't kill you weakens you. But also the people who made it through life unscathed, and this fits with your insight, they also have low pain tolerance. It's like they never, they've never been tested. They've never been tried. So there's and, a sense in which that we can, by having been through difficult experiences, we become more resilient. We do. We we can endure better. And there there are these examples of post traumatic growth, as you say. Yes. Yes. So, I'm somewhat skeptical. I think these examples tend to be overblown. But but the right sort of suffering, particularly right sort of so chosen suffering, I think can be beneficial. I also think that in some way, just to get fatalistic about it, you know, I, I talk about having children. And, and the pros and cons of that and how it might be good for one kind of life and bad for another kind of life. But I quote Zadie Smith at length, and she just talks about the tremendous risk you have when you have a child and you love a child, the possibility of agony, worry to lose that child. And I think that nicely captures the fact that the pursuits in life that we value the most also carry the most risk of pain. Well, you, are, you ask us for, in, in the book to imagine a, a scenario in which we're told that we can have a children in, within this time span, but it, it, the, yeah. the child will be, will be ill or, or, or fatally ill, or we can wait. And, and some people you think would still go for that first option. Or imagine a case, that, the case I imagine is from an a, a MIT philosopher, is that suppose for one reason something goes awry and you have the kid during that time, you shouldn't have had the kid. And the kid grows up and has some medical problems causing the kid pain. And then somebody comes to you and says, do you regret your choice? And it's such an interesting question because if you, suppose you were told if you had a child another time, the kid wouldn't have these pains. And you say, yeah, that would have been better. But then this person wouldn't exist. Exactly. And, and, and the I same, love this person. The same test can be applied to people who had children when they were 16 or 17 and on, yes. on level deeply regret that and see it as a mistake, but they can never unwish the life yes. of their own child. Yes, that's right. That's right. 
Okay, let me give you some quick questions from the audience. Anonymous attendee says, how do we cope with pain and struggles that stem from illness? So this is unchosen pain. Yeah, this example, is unchosen. For example, cancer, i.e. something we've had no control over. I wrote a summary of my book uh, in the Wall Street Journal, and I got a letter right away from somebody who had chronic pain from cancer. And he was furious at me. She was saying, you know, how dare you say this is one? And I said, no, I, I'm not. I, I think those things are awful and pretending that they're not awful is an insult to people who suffer from these things. I have no bit of special advice. There's the standard issues of, of psychological treatments, even though it's not a psychological uh, problem, psychological treatments could help and physical treatments. And I guess all I could say is don't listen to anybody who says it's happening for a reason. Fiona says, have you changed how you live your life after doing all your research? This is similar to my sort of wow moment, but in terms of how you actually live your life. A little bit. <laughs> I'm going to the gym more. I'm appreciating that these flow states, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to organize my life so I spend less time on email and Twitter and social media and video games and all of those million things and more time spending time with my partner or writing or doing, doing other difficult things. And, I th and it's hard. It's really hard. But I think I'm making some limited progress in my life better off as a result. This is a, a question that may be beyond your brief, but Karen says, so what's the difference between the value of suffering and fasting that we talked about versus the mindset of an eating disorder? That is, that is out of my um, capacity. On the one hand, you might say that they're very different because certainly an eating disorder is, is, is unwanted. But there may be a connection where one argument about what goes on in certain eating disorders is there really is a satisfaction of control taken to an extreme, taken to an unhealthy extreme. But there's something of controlling what gets into my body to a precise amount, no matter how hungry I am, that, that feels great. And it connects to almost an obsessive disorder because, because it holds more value than you would want it to. But I think the notion of control does become valuable in both cases. Final question, anonymous again. What impact do you think the growth of instant rewarding and passive entertainment, and we did touch on this, will have on us and future generations? So we talked about it very much in a personal context, but do you think that there, there, there are going to be big societal changes that perhaps we aren't fully cognizant of at the moment? So you talked about the dangers of looking at our phones. We talked about the passivity of Netflix, not all of it, of course. Yeah. Can, can this re, will, will this, is it reshaping our societies? I think it is. You know, the CEO of Netflix once said, you know, their enemy, they aren't competing with other companies, they're competing with sleep. And I think Facebook and Twitter are competing with life. But, you know, my sons grew up in that world of social media and everything like that. And yet, you know, one of my sons is a rock climber, the other one reads Russian novels for fun. I think people have the resources sometimes to, to live more of a 19th century life and break out of these, these temptations. So in the end, I'm kind of an optimist. And I could imagine that if enough people want to break out of the temptations, there could be activities and movements and even technologies that could help them. Paul, it's been really great to spend the last hour with you all the way there from Canada to Wales with people tuning in, no doubt, from America and England and elsewhere. It's been really entertaining, but also important. And there's so much more in the book that we haven't had time to go through. But I feel we, we scoped it out just a little bit over the course of the last 60 minutes or so. Thank you to everyone as well for coming. So Paul's book, The Sweet Spot, and I hope it hits your sweet spot, 
is available. Is it available in bookstores in the UK already? Indeed it is. Indeed yeah. it is. Uh, they have a different cover. If you look, it has a, a beautiful cover of a smiley face and a frowny face overlapping. Yeah. Quite overlapping, exactly. The, um, in, 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 this interesting intersection. The sweet spot, if you get it right, perhaps. And and for those of for those of you who've been touched by some of the, the more serious stuff that on the mental health side, if you're in the UK, you can call 116123. That's a free number. That's the Samaritans. I don't know what the numbers are for Canada, America and elsewhere, but I'm sure and hope there will be mental health charities that can help of course, we talked a little earlier, didn't we, Paul, about the heroism of suffering, but there's nothing heroic about suffering in the mental health context, so please do reach out and talk. But this book is much more about the fun side of life and how, and, and understanding, as we've talked about, how what the psychology is behind our leaning in in certain contexts to pain yes. and, and, and to, to areas that we might find counterintuitive in their relationship to pleasure and happiness. Paul, thank you so much for spending this time with us at How To Academy. I have to say, you know, we talked before, this has been kind of a flow state for me. The time the time has whipped by. It was a delight. Thank you, you so much. Have, you couldn't have paid it me a higher compliment. Thank you. I feel the same. This week's podcast starred Paul Bloom and was presented by Matthew Stadlin. It was produced by Luke Naylapero and myself, Vas Christodoulou, and the editor was John Doughty. Join us next week for our final show of the year, starring the model, author and entrepreneur Emily Ratajkowski and journalist Pandora Sykes. Until next time, thanks for listening.